Marshall and Sagar here. Welcome back to The Realignment. This week, very excited to bring you a special Monday episode right before the 2020 presidential election. And we brought on a person who barely needs any introduction, Mr. Eric, actually I should say doctor, Dr. Eric Weinstein. Of course, Eric hosts the Portal podcast. You're sure you know him from Joe Rogan. He's the brother of one of our previous guests, Dr. Brett Weinstein. Eric is one of the smartest minds I know whenever it comes to analyzing systems, using scientific concepts to break down our understanding of politics. He's also somebody who's fed up with both Joe Biden and Donald Trump, which I think probably better describes you know many of you out there who are listening. He grapples with questions of power. He grapples with questions of why we might feel disenfranchised in a moment like this. And he gives us all actually a little bit of a reason for hope for what a better future could look like. This is easily hands down one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done. I think you guys are going to get a lot out of it in a way to think about the 2020 election in a very different way. The best part about this conversation with Eric is he's able to look towards the future because as Sagar and I point out many times, we not only don't want to do horse race politics, we're really bored by horse race politics. So this is actually a great show that's going to stand even after the election because as to Sagar's point, he's very much someone who's interested in what's going to happen in 2024, not the specific sort of electoral breakdown of the election the day before. So lots of great stuff there. So- as I understand it, uh, we have a little bit of a question, but before we get to that, just as a reminder, if you guys could help us out, rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you leave us a written five-star review and you ask us a question, we will answer it right here on the air. What's the question for this week, Marshall? This is from Luke. Hi, I'm a younger conservative, and I typically err on the side of small government conservatism and libertarianism, but you've broadened my views to the new right populism brand on the right you've spoken about. With that said, can you explain why you think the Trump tax cuts were a waste of political capital in 2017, like you mentioned in the Chris Buskirk episode? Presumably, the economic accomplishments of the Trump administration result largely from the tax cuts. I guess I've been in a conservative bubble of podcasts and media where tax cuts and deregulation are so revered. Thanks so much, Luke. Luke, let me open your eyes, my friend. You're Neo. I'm Morpheus. I didn't want to come to this knowledge, but I did. What do you think the single most unpopular thing that Trump did as president is? Day 329 of his presidency, he reached his lowest approval rating. Media would probably tell you Charlottesville. The Republican establishment would probably tell you whatever he put like China, China tariffs on China and violated trade heresy. It was the day that he passed the GOP tax bill. It wasn't coronavirus. It wasn't anything else, which means you can mismanage a pandemic that leads to literal death, and that is more popular than cutting the corporate tax rate and giving billionaires more money. So from a sheer point of political capital, you don't want to use your political capital to pass the single most unpopular piece of tax legislation in modern American history, more unpopular than the Bush tax cuts at the time, which 538 wrote about in 2017. But beyond that, that's just a matter of public sentiment. Let's presume that it was good public policy. Sometimes good public policy is not broadly popular. Well, the truth is, and we, you should go back and listen to our Joe Weisenthal episode, is that the broadened distributional effects of the tax cuts did not see an increase in business investment and many of the other promises. To the extent that there was a great economy under the Trump administration, it's for two 
very specific reasons. Again, media and the GOP establishment don't want to admit this. Number one was a net decrease in the level of U immigration to the United States. We had the tightest labor market on record under Donald Trump because of his immigration policies. And second was because of the Federal Reserve and a looser monetary policy, which changed the value of the dollar relative to the rest of the world. Ross Douthat, in his most recent column over at the New York Times, writes about how Trump is probably the only president in modern American history who could have combined immigration restrictionism with looser monetary policy. And to the extent that we had a roaring economy, it was because of increased wages amongst lower wage workers for the first time in almost over 30 years. That comes from that tight labor market. And then on trade and the rest of why we were revving up is because of that monetary policy. So the longer answer to your question is, is that not only was the GOP tax bill the single most unpopular thing that Trump did as president, it's also not even the reason why that we had a great economy under Trump before COVID in the first place. I probably think Sagar is overstating a little bit the impact of the immigration policy with the tight labor market, because obviously it's not as if immigrants who would have come to take jobs would have been perfectly distributed across the economy. And you really did see that the tight labor markets were sort of everywhere. So I do think that could be overstated, but I do broadly endorse the idea that tight labor markets were the real big accomplishment there. The broader point to understand here is that 2017 was also nine years after the financial crisis. So a lot of the economic <laughs> right. growth was also the fact that the country was finally coming back from really devastating economic times in 2008. So the key thing that Sagar said here is not that this is an argument inherently against tax cuts. It's just an argument against the idea that a complicated economy of 340 million people can be sort of changed by passing a 10-year tax plan, right? It's not as if magically money was sort of in there right away. It's not as if the deregulation happened right away too. So definitely just don't overstate that. And the key thing here is, and we talked about this with Chris Buskirk, we've talked about this with other guests, when President Trump had to make a decision of what his first act of, act of his presidency was going to be, he didn't choose infrastructure, he didn't choose a broader economic reform, he chose tax cuts and health care, both of which ended disastrously. So that's the key thing there. But thank you for the question. And if you guys have more, please be sure to write them in the reviews and send us questions at realignmentpod at gmail.com. As we mentioned, we're doing a special elections episode. It actually takes around two days for questions to post on iTunes when you leave them. So probably stick with the realignmentpod at gmail if you want to get them in for tomorrow's Q&A episode. As always, a special thank you to the Lincoln Network for sponsoring this podcast, enabling the work that we do here. Reboot Conference is coming up. It's going to literally be the week that this comes out. Rebootconference.org. Marshall's going to be there. I'm going to be there. Rachel Bovard, many other friends of the show. You've already heard some of those interviews leading up to that conference here on our special episodes. So with that, let's dive into this incredible conversation with Dr. Eric Weinstein. Eric Weinstein, welcome to The Realignment. Hey, guys. It is great to be here. Thanks. It's great great to see you, Eric. Thanks Eric, for you and I have talked a bit offline, um, and I've, I've been an avid listener of yours on Joe Rogan and to your own podcast about this current political moment. Um, you're our last guest before the 2020 presidential election, so we'll just begin where we've kind of been doing for the last month, which is how are you feeling about things right now? 
Uh, what, what are you feeling about this election? I see. I'm the so-called sacrificial guest. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm feeling terrible. How are you feeling? <laughs> yeah, Not we're great. both we're apathetic. Apathetic, just to mix, uh, just to uh, paper over feelings of doom and and gloom, essentially. Well, I guess what I feel is is that um, at some point I realized that this election is in some deep sense uh, a danger to serious people because it may be that um, in World War II we had to ally ourselves, let's say, with a Stalin to defeat a Hitler, but hopefully we didn't get confused in the process about what we were using to defeat what. Mm. And... In this case, uh, I think that the best case for Joe Biden is the defeat of Donald Trump, and the same is true in reverse. And I can't figure out any way in which the two of them knock each other out so that somebody not born in the 1940s might be able to sit in a chair. <laughs> well, it seems to me the argument that someone who's making that Joe Biden choice would make is that Joe Biden buys you time. Joe Biden has sort of a caretaker presidency. Republicans do better in 2022, so nothing basically happens. And then we get a reset in 2024. What do you think about that idea? I think it's preposterous, but thank you for asking. Um, I, I guess what I think about it, by the way, this is just like all in good fun because we have to yeah, get some energy going into this thing. Yes. Um, yeah, but I think it's an interesting question. I think that one possibility is is that Joe Biden is giving us a reset um, because he gives us an opportunity to transition out of this bizarre world that we've been in with Donald Trump for four years. Uh, and another level, you could say that Donald Trump buys us time um, because what he's doing is he's holding on, even as a bullshitter, to some notion of a previously rememberable America, whereas the Democrats are exploring some new territory where maybe the national anthem and the Constitution are passe, uh, maybe Martin Luther King is a racist. And depending upon what you see the greater threat as being, somebody who's obviously trolling the American left every day, doing it very effectively um, in order to cleave us apart, which is Donald Trump's particular patented uh, thing where he lets off a tweet or says something that the left fills in as if they're doing connect the dots without the dots specified. So if you've ever looked at the night sky and had somebody say, oh, they're Sagittarius, and you're saying, well, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I see Sagittarius, that's what Donald Trump's individual utterances do all the time. He gives the left things to connect, the, the left supplies the connections, and then the right points out that a lot of that was done inferentially. And every day uh, we have a situation in which um, we're faced with a new version of the dress where we don't know whether it's uh, black and blue or white and gold. Mm -hmm. And those two things are very different threats to the United States. And the only way to get rid of one threat is to go with the other. That's our problem. It's, it's, it's a really interesting way to put it. Um, and I guess it actually really depends on what your greatest enemy is. Cause in a way, each affirmative point, affirmative case for each candidate is the negative against the other. One thing I think is overlaid on top of this, Eric, that you have talked a lot about is systematized corruption within both party systems. And I'm just curious from your view about how you see that overlaid onto these decisions. It's a great question. Um, the way I see it is the following. Most of us have a moderating impulse, but when the center turned kleptocratic on both sides, we lost the ability to point to moderation because as soon as you point to moderation, somebody says, wow, kleptocracy, no thank you. 
The swamp, mm -hmm. no thank you. Business as usual, no thank you. So that left us with two extremes, a, uh, a sort of crazy left-wing woke extreme and a, an ugly right extreme that really poked through the surface at the beginning of the Trump presidency and then mostly went underground. But you saw it. I mean, it poked, it's poked its, its head through the crust and we saw all the 1488 posts on Twitter and positive references to Hitler and the baiting of people with Pepe frogs and then hiding behind is just a frog. Why are you, why are you so upset? All of this um, gave sensible people nowhere to park themselves. There's no home. You're all homeless because either you're pro-left of center or right of center kleptocracy hollowing out the country day by day and empowering our rivals uh, abroad, or you're signed up with one of two uh, lunatic wings, which uh, any sensible person shouldn't be, should, shouldn't be spending time with. And in that situation, most of us don't know what to do. So we choose one of the bad options in front of us, opt out, klepto, far left, far right, and that is now currently tearing us apart because we can't figure out where to stand. How is, like, Sagar, I don't know who you voted for. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned is I, I don't care anymore. If you voted mm -hmm. Trump, if you voted Biden, if you wrote in somebody like Mickey Mouse, if you voted for the, the libertarians, my feeling is you're my countryman and my brother, and there was no good way to vote. And I don't know. Maybe maybe we could have allied ourselves with with Hitler to defeat Stalin, or maybe we could have tried to defeat both at the same time in a losing <laughs> losing battle. We don't have any good options, and so whatever it is that we're going to do to save ourselves, I'm now looking past the election. I'm no longer. I know that this is being done before the election. We're going to release it right before. But my feeling is, if you've stopped talking to your uncle or your cousin or your wife. If you're thinking about getting divorced, if your kids won't talk to you, cut the crap because family and friends are real and all of these options are bad. And stop mm -hmm. pretending that you love one of them because you actually don't. Yeah. There's so many fascinating things, Eric. So two things I want to pick up on. Number one, I want to discourse about the idea that there's this really sort of left behind set of people because you have a PhD. Both of Sagar's parents have PhDs, and my father has a PhD. Um, so there's probably sort of a separate joke we can make about that. But <laughs> at a core level, though, if you're looking at an America that's increasingly stratified politically by economic and educational class attainment, actually, I would bet that my parents, my mother has a JD, and Sagar's parents are actually pretty comfortable with their Biden vote. So I'm just interested in like what with you personally and the broader sort of circumstances of this this perception you have that people are sort of torn. Because it doesn't seem to me that you could look at how badly Trump is doing in upper income suburbs and think that that notion is true. Hmm. Uh, I'm a little bit confused. Sagar, when, what, what are your parents, what is the younger of your parents' birth date, your birth year? Uh, I think it's 1964. Okay. So that's right before this weird cusp, and I'm 65, and it's really strange how fast things changed in the middle of the 1960s, in part because of the 1965 Immigration Act. So boomers tend to be whiter, more homogenous. They tend to have sort of experienced something collectively. Um, Gen X more or less can't figure out uh, why the boomers are, like, we eat their jet, their jet wash. And... Um, <laughs> Even to the extent that that late boomers in the '60s, 
like like um, former President Obama seem very different to me than people like, let's say, the guy I work for was born in 67. So I do think that one of the things that's going on has to do with your developmental programming. Uh, I'm sort of the oldest Xer, and when I think Xer, um, my feeling is I have no patience for any of this stuff. I graduated high school uh, and college with the boomers, however. Right. And so I can see it from their perspective where they can just barely, if they get drunk enough, pretend that the system is still working and that they got everything because they got up early for a paper route in college. And huh. I have no understanding of, of sort of the, the, the really early boomers in the 40s, uh, which is what we're doing, what we're exploring now, are completely alien structures. I do not know why a 74-year-old versus a 78-year-old at inauguration makes sense and no, to everyone because nobody's really commenting on the fact that we've never remotely explored anything like this for this job. Mm. One thing I'm curious um, from your perspective, Eric, is that in your discussion you, you're saying you're looking to the future. There's been mm -hmm. a lot of talk, both right and left. So some people who share kind of my politics, who want to see you know more nationalist, robust politics, are saying actually Trump was a disaster for all of that. You know, despite the fact that you know he came in, ran on this stuff for 2016, he polarized public opinion. So maybe it would be a good thing for him to go by the wayside. I've seen the same thing from the left, kind of an accelerationist, progressive left perspective, who are like actually what Trump has done is he's radicalized the whole country on many or half the country on many of these left lines, and that he's actually the best thing that's ever happened to showing how derelict and feckless the Democratic establishment is. So if we want to destroy them, then we would want Trump to win. But it seems to me that both are kind of ignoring that in the minutia of government, there are levers of power which must be pulled in the day-to-day, -day, which have immense impact. So from the right, you have things like the courts and regulations. From the left, you also have things like the courts, you know, other regulation, healthcare, et cetera. How are people who are like yourself, how can they navigate that? Which is that- We can't. Who, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can't. Uh, I went to go visit uh, someone in the Eisenhower office building uh, just off of- um, the White House. Mm -hmm. And I was astounded as I walked through this office building, how I was walking past many important sort of plaques on the sides of doors, you know, like a right. trade representative to Europe or something. And door after door was open and there was no one in the office. <laughs> and I thought about this, that in some sense, you can't staff a Trumpian government because Trumpianism doesn't exist beyond Donald Trump. Nobody knows what this guy is going to do next. He's in, mm -hmm. um, as I think Anna Khachian, uh observed uh, at the Red Scare podcast, uh, he's a genius. He just doesn't happen to be a political genius. He's a performance artist. So we have a performance artist in the White House. Nobody can figure out how to coordinate with him. He, he, he sort of destroys everyone who attempts to, to build a team um, because he he's he's working idiosyncratically to evade the immune system of the American left, which is entrenched particularly in media, in academe. And in that system, uh, Donald Trump can't be as effective as he would be if there was something called Trumpianism, but he would never have snuck through the Republican Party primary system if he was anything other than completely weirdly unpredictable as a drunken boxer who everybody assumes is an idiot, but is in fact working at a higher level than most people at a, at a performance art or, polit or you know, political theater level. Okay, so that means that he's not very effective, which in some weird way could be good if you think he's going to do damage. But the problem that you brought up earlier, which I think is more interesting, is that he tinges a lot of, like you say nationalist, 
Mm-hmm. I'm a patriot, and I don't think there's probably a hair's breadth of difference between what you're calling nationalism and what I'm calling patriotism, except you just stopped, stepped in a bear trap set by the left, which is that everything <laughs> nationalist right, is, is uh, well, it's, it's, it's Nazi, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, effectively, you're one of these South Asian Nazis, of course, that we've heard so much about in recent years. Yes. Uh, none of that makes any sense. The problem with Trump is that he tinges things with jingoism. And so, you know, I'm a restrictionist. Now, the left has traditionally understood that employers try to use immigration uh, to push out the supply curve and without getting into issues about what the effect is on the demand curve um, in their sector, when you push out the supply curve, the price of the product goes down, which is the wage. Right. Somehow the left brainwashed people as it became the right under the Clintons into thinking that immigration simply does good things, nothing negative, and that effectively uh, the the left sort of joined the Wall Street Journal of all people, uh, which proposed a constitutional amendment, there shall be open borders famously. When Trump talks about immigration, he makes you kind of sick to your stomach and queasy because there's a part of it that doesn't feel very wholesome. You know, we know those Mexicans, they're trying to sneak across. And then, you know, he's, he does this blurring thing where he's talking about some of the unpleasant people who are crawling across our southern border. And then there's a question, does he think it represents everybody? And then the left will, you know, do what I said before. They'll fill in the details and they'll decide that, well, he's calling everybody a dirty rapist coming from Mexico. The right will say he said nothing of the kind. And then we have this one of these kind of, um, it's like a time delay grenade to go off during your Thanksgiving dinner. And yes. I think that that's the thing that we need to guard against, because what I see him doing is, is that he'll say things in ways that are disgusting, that sometimes represent things that must be said, but everybody on the American left is too cowardly, feeble, and, you know, I like this thing that you're saying, that they're utterly without feck. I, I think mm-hmm. that, you know, the Democratic <laughs> Party is completely lost when it comes to standing up for what the Democratic Party and the American left is supposed to be doing. And like you, I want a functioning right and a functioning left um, so that we can trade off between them and have a balanced country. And what instead we have is an insane left and a single idiosyncratic person who every day deranges the American dialogue. And I don't know that we can, if you've ever seen an MMA fight, where you'll have somebody yes. com- repeatedly kick somebody in one spot over and over again, like a leg kick. Mm-hmm. And over the fight, that injury builds up because they're only attacking one spot. Well, I think that that's part of the danger of a second Trump administration. So we've been injuring this thing for four years. Do you want eight years of exactly the same injury or do you want to change and go down a different path and we can go down a, a, a Biden injury or a Kamala Harris injury where maybe we bring back critical race theory and forget about the law of the excluded middle and just say dumb stuff in, in case it sounds attractive and allows the donor class and the Hamptons to get in the power structure they want while pretending to care about people who are brown and female. And you mm-hmm. know, quite frankly, I don't want either injury and I don't know how to get out of it except at some point the rest of us are going to have to say no mas and we're going to need somebody who knows how to program a computer and doesn't remember exactly where they were when JFK was killed. <laughs> so I actually want to get into defining terms here because when you were pointing out that what Sagar calls nationalism, you could describe as patriotism, I actually strongly disagree because everyone can be patriotic, but nationalism in the Trump era, and this goes to your point about 
does Trumpism mean anything? Nationalism actually refers to a sort of set of ideas. So I want to know what you think about those ideas. So for example, a nationalist would critique the American system pre-Trump as being too structured or a multilateral institution. So a nationalist would say that NATO is an institution doesn't serve American interest. A nationalist would say that the World Trade Organization, the W, the World Health Organization, the UN, et cetera, those are institutions that don't serve America's national interest. So you can be a patriot and believe the UN is a good thing. You could be a patriot and think that NATO expansion in the 1990s was a good idea. So I want to know what you think about that multilateralism critique, because I don't think that you would say that you agree with all of those sort of points from a sort of patriotic perspective. That's a good point. I'm not sure. That's an interesting... Let, let, let's have a fight and see how it goes. Um, <laughs> effectively, I think that you actually can't slither on your belly and uh, do China's bidding when China tells you to jump. You're not supposed to say how high. You're supposed to say, who the hell are you? And right. um, I feel very strongly that if you're going to participate in multinational agreements, which I think you have to in, a, in, in this world, or you have to give away the hardest one thing from World War II, which was you know, the, the sort of American um, America presiding over an, of an order that didn't become nuclear in 75 years. I, I think that's pretty amazing. Uh, you have to be self-confident and non-self-hating. And what you're talking about over and over is the self-hating left that is constantly trying to give away power to show that it is beyond the limited features of, uh, of the American experiment. Eager mm -hmm. to say things like, I'm a citizen of the world, as if your passport is issued by the world, which it most certainly is not. Or <laughs> you know, you're advertising uh, effectively that uh, no one is illegal which means what? That everybody has a right to be wherever they want? I mean, yes. I care about Americans more than I care about Uruguayans. Is that because I think Americans are better people than Uruguayans? No, because I'm responsible for Americans and they're responsible for me. And just the way, you know, Sagar, uh, mm -hmm. you and I have talked a little bit, Marshall, you and I not. Um, I hope you won't take this personally, but I don't care about your family nearly as much as I care about my own and I would I'm be broken. really creeped out. If you, Sagar, felt more yeah. strongly about my family than yours. So yes. there's just sort of a kind of developmental maturity where you have to gain people's respect by not hating yourself, not selling your country out, not constantly falling over yourself to apologize for whatever power you've built up in the world. And that has to do with the fact that we have a weird class at the top of our society uh, financially that knows how to sell out the United States of America for money, particularly from China. So I always, mm -hmm. whenever I see a BMW or a third home, I always ask the question, how much of that third home came from China? <laughs> and in recent years, if you're doing pretty well, a lot of that came from China. Mm -hmm. So those of us who don't have third homes um, very often have a very strong sense of, you know, if I get into trouble overseas, I know I have to call the American embassy. I can't call up the UN to get me the hell out of trouble. Right. And so I would say that that's really the nub of it, which is you've got a lot of people on the left eager to fall over themselves to tell you how terrible America is and how much better everyone else is. And you've got another group of people who's eager, eager to exploit what that kind of mutant self-awareness. I want to say that the left is actually, I like the fact that we're self-critical. I mean, I can tell you all sorts of things wrong with the United States. I can tell you things that's done to my family that make me apoplectic with rage. It's still my country, and I love it. And it's not mm -hmm. the love of a child, um, you know, or, or, or like a prepubescent teenager uh, 
for your, uh, you know, your gorgeous phys ed teacher. Instead, it's a mature love where you've been in a relationship for a long time and you see all the flaws and you say, you know what, this is still the greatest country on earth and I can tell you everything wrong with it. I just, I mean, I love that articulation. We so rarely hear it. Marshall, I know you have a follow-up. Go ahead. Yeah, so just quick follow-up on that. So let's set China aside for a second, because I think all of us share this sort of like realignment central critique of China. But let's sort of go back to your critique of people who sort of remember JFK's assassination, because forget the WTO and trade agreements. Think of NATO, right? So think of NATO. NATO is this institution that was set up during the height of the Cold War in the 1950s. None of us were alive when it was started. And that's an institution where this sort of left-right debate comes into play. Because for me, it's not that anyone who supports NATO hates America. And actually, like, NATO is a military institution. So for that, it's people who believe that the U.S. has a commitment to Europe, and that commitment has meant something for peace and stability for the first time in 500 years on the continent, obviously. But the critique that I have of that sort of NATO consensus is that it was tired. You know, so in 2015, you had a bunch of people at DC think tanks who repeated, America is the defender of the liberal world order and blah and blah and blah. <laughs> that didn't actually mean anything to anyone. So can you talk about sort of post-World War II institutions and sort of that failure there separate from the idea that we're sort of selling things out? Because I think those are two different but important critiques. Well, I think that in 1992... Um, we had a, an earthquake where we, we suddenly went from having a Democratic Party and a Republican Party to two Republican parties when Bill Clinton realized that uh, we'd had 12 years of Republicans if he didn't do something different. Right. And he figured out the wrong reinvention of the Democratic Party uh, by my standards, but judging by the fact that I think they're now a nine-figure family and I don't really know what they do for a living, uh, he did something right <laughs> by him. So uh, he, he can hang out in Chappaqua, New York, which, by the way, is 92% white last time I checked. Um, yeah. If I'm around 92% white people, I start to get hives. Uh, n nothing personal white people. Um, I think that what Bill Clinton did... Uh, was an abomination, and it had to do with wasting the period around the end of the Cold War to say, you know what, the real issue is that we're on an incredibly dangerous planet. We happen to have won something. We now have to consolidate structures and use the dividend and plow it back in to world stability and order in order to make sure that we have a future. And instead, what the baby boomers did uh, was to figure out how can we continue to become richer than our parents, given that we're not actually growing for underlying technological reasons other than in a few fields. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what they did is, is that they figured out this sort of Davos idealism where they fly in to Switzerland to talk about the environment on their private planes and talk about philanthropy rather than taxes uh, and rape the rest of us for the rest of the year. And that fusing of we are the world idealism with uh, what is your hand doing in my pocket looking for my wallet exactly uh, was very popular as a boomer activity and a silent, genera silent generation activity in the 90s and the 2000s, and then particularly in the run-up to the financial crisis. And that's where we've been, is that we completely misspent the dividend uh, from winning the, the Cold War on baby boomers, and I don't know why we did that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Eric. A friend of mine, Julius Krein, he recently made this point that all periods of American history are essentially one-party rule. 
So you have, maybe from the post-New Deal era. Basically, you have FDR, who's New Deal, then Truman, more Square Deal. Then you have Eisenhower, who is a technically a Republican, but declares peace on the New Deal. That New Deal era kind of dies with Jimmy Carter. Then Ronald Reagan ushers in Republican rule of 12 years. And Bill Clinton is like, well, I don't want 16 years of Republican rule, so I'll just become a Republican. But functionally, you get the same level of policy. So to me, the project of trying to make this country better is trying to change the one-party rule consensus. And you identified it as this kind of Davos elite globalism, um, a financialization, and uh, a one-worldism, which we've talked here about before on the podcast. How do we defeat that system? It references something I talked about before, about systematized corruption, because the greatest corrupt institutions own everybody. They don't just own one party or the other. And that is kind of how I see things right now. And I truly, I mean, I try hard on my show and others to level critiques, but I got to be honest, I'm going up against hundreds of billions of dollars in capital, um, maybe trillions. Um, So what do we do about it? Well, that's not your problem, Sagar. Yeah. Your problem is, is that you're right now independent. (laughs) <laughs> and right. because you're independent, you can reach millions of people. You can reach more people. Have you ever seen how low some of the engagement numbers are for people who work at the New York Times? Nobody cares. Nobody wants yeah. it. Right. Right. Except one guaranteed constituency, which is other institutions. Yes. And in effect, if you work for an institution, you want to read the institutional report. I want to know what NPR said yesterday. And if they said that um, we're going to be attacked by flying pangolins uh, jamming uh, the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, that would sound crazy to me. But it would mean that I could repeat it at work and not be fired. (laughs) Right? So, like, they're smart. Everyone's like, oh, I heard that last week too. Yeah. Well, yeah, somebody also say, very often I'll go to a, a dinner party and I will listen to stories I've heard. Oh, that was an NPR story. That was a New York Times article. And people don't realize that all they're doing is repeating shit from the same system. Now, um, you can reach many more people. You're you're fresh, you're bold. Marshall, I'm just meeting you. You sound the same. I think you guys are going to have tremendous success. What you're not going to have success is that every institution knows that they don't have to talk to you. As long as they only talk to NPR, Fox, the New York Times, the RNC... Princeton University, the Urban Institute, all this stuff, they can keep this fake conversation going as a completely internal affair, and it will always have the illusion of a conversation. It's a little bit like magicians agreeing to be in the audience for tricks that everyone can see how it's done and pretend to be amazed and say, my God, that's astounding. You've done it again. (laughs) And like none of us believe it, but we're not institutions. So your real question is when do the individuals like you... Well, Joe Rogan is on the cusp. Hmm. They finally figured out that Joe Rogan is effectively beyond their grasp at an institutional level. And I Mm -hmm. I think it's very concerning to me what happens. Uh, Joe sort of continuously signals that he's not really that serious about politics. And I believe that the instant that Joe Rogan indicates that he wants to be a real serious political force, something bad is going to happen, and I'm really... I don't want to find out what, and I don't want to speculate what, but I do think that what they, what they do is make sure that you can speak the truth as long as it has no importance in the great, in the, what I've called the gated institutional narrative or the gin. Yes. So something I'm fascinated by, and this is within the context of these independent people is I 
feel I, I just have a different theory of politics and a lot of sort of the independent space because my concern when I listen to sort of, let's just say the, let's call it the alt-center sort of people who are sort of like put off by a lot of these sort of spaces, Joe's in this category, you're in this category, is there's a degree of cynicism that I think is counterproductive to the project. So when I look at the critique you're making of the of the system, when I look to your sort of, I'm moving on to 2024, I see a sort of rejection of power and its use. So the question for you I'd have is, how do you critique a system without promoting a cynicism which isn't useful? So I'll give an example of what sort of happens here. So I, I go on rising uh, with Sagar a lot, and because of that, I've been exposed to sort of a lot of left viewers who are sort of there for crystal. And I went on a radio show and the rising viewer was talking to me about how the DNC is just totally corrupt. They have all the power. There's nothing the progressive left could do. And I was sort of like, well, hey, just so you know, oh, he kept on bringing up super, super delegates. And I was like, hey, just so you know, super delegates didn't decide the 2020 election. Joe Biden actually pretty handily won the election because he spoke to a really powerful coalition of older black boomer voters and like wealthy suburbanites. And that's not a conspiracy. That's just sort of politics. If you want to have your progressive viewpoints be understood, you need to make arguments that either appeal to that part of your coalition, or you need to find a new way to reframe your ideas. So how do you sort of find a way to communicate to people like that rising listener that it's okay for them to be cynical about the DNC? I'm not here to defend them, but also not lead them to be sort of conspiracy theorists who don't actually understand power. That's what I want to know. Marshall, we're both Jewish. Yes. Yes. So there's a Jewish joke which, whose punchline is, oi, do you have a wrong number? Uh, <laughs> about the queen calling up uh, Mrs. Cohen. Anyway, um, uh-huh. I, I'm not with you here. Uh, my feeling is, is that I'm angry that MSNBC constantly stood in front of Andrew Yang's graphics. Uh, I don't think there was a primary. I don't agree that we held a primary, that we held debates I think that it's important to understand the depth of my critique. I don't think that was a primary, and I believe that if you, for example, use Google Trends, you'll find that the interest in Andrew Yang searches and Elizabeth Warren searches were comparable, mm-hmm. and not that far off of Joe Biden's searches. Uh, what they're saying with superdelegates, you know, maybe that's a little antiquated. They're 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 carrying a torch for Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Who knows? Um, <laughs> but. I think we all do, don't we? Um, of course. <laughs> the problem is, is that I think that the Democratic Party has learned that it has to use a full court press to suppress new ideas in younger people. Remember that at the end of this election cycle, and I'll repeat this till I'm blue in the face, every candidate, every major candidate, five for five, I believe, was born in the 1940s. And... Previous to Donald Trump taking the oath at age 70, the oldest president at inauguration was Ronald Reagan at 69. Mm -hmm. This is completely insane. And to have no one commenting on it, um, you know, you were left with who? Bloomberg, Warren, Biden, Sanders, and Trump? Um, This is not an election. I did not participate in a primary. I don't know what this is. And I think many of us have come to understand that there's a concept that isn't super delegate, but super voter. Right. And so a super voter would be Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey. A super voter would be uh, Nicole Hannah Jones. And right. whoever these people are and whatever the, the, the rule is that goes out at MSNBC or CNN, which says leave this person off the graphic or post a wrong picture, constant trolling. And, and, and I, I want to use uh, profanity as a resource. I don't 
use it a ton, but I've, I've learned I have to use it more. What the fucking fuckity fuck? I mean, uh-huh. get, the, get MSNBC off the air. I don't want NPR or CNN or the New York Times managing a debate. This entire thing is a farce. And that's what they're really trying to say. It's not about superdelegates. I think that's a very important point, Eric. And that you mentioned you want to get to the depth of the critique. And so I want to return to that. You talked about the gin. This is something you and I have talked about offline. I referred to it last time kind of as a circular system. And you and I have, I, I've always well, puzzled. Let me just say one to, thing. Saga. Yes, go ahead. Yes. Your, your and Crystal's discussion at the beginning of Joe Rogan was a life-changing experience for me, talking about the the business of politics as seen by Washington, D.C., whether you are in office or out of office. Right. Everyone should go back and listen and get those numbers on that episode to skyrocket, just at least for the beginning of it when you guys describe it. Huge service mm-hmm. to the rest of us. Thank you. Go on. No, absolutely. I mean, and, and that's actually refers to kind of what I'm talking about here, which is you talked about the gin. And I've tried to explain this to people, which is that there can be conspiracies without knowing you're part of the conspiracy. And that's what you just referred to, which is that what does lead to the semi-conscious thought of an MSNBC producer to say, screw Andrew Yang, we're not putting this guy on there. What leads to the creation of what you, you talked about, about that conventional wisdom, institutionalized signaling to other institutions. And what are ways to disrupt that conversation from the outside? Is it what you just referred to? Do you have to actually destroy MSNBC to save the Democratic Party? Is there a way um, in order to change the power dynamic? Like what, what is it exactly that can be done to change that system? And then what is that system that governs itself? Because we all know we're being ruled by conventional wisdom. But I can't point to just one thing and say, this is the guy who's creating conventional wisdom and is creating top-down knowledge. It's an amorphous thing, but it's also obviously real. It's an excellent question. Let's come up with an acronym. Hang on a second. Mm -hmm. Oh, I got one. The DISC, the Distributed Idea Suppression Complex. Got it. D-I-S-C. Writing this down. Yeah. Okay, good. Good, good, good. (laughs) The DISC is the every single institution needs a response to what do we do when people start having conversations we don't want them to have, when they start thinking for themselves, when they start trying to reason through things and testing our hypotheses or looking at data. So we need some way of instantly discouraging people who start to do something that gets us out of the system. So for example, with Andrew Yang, you might say something like, I don't know, upstart populism, untested, Uh, You know, quite honestly, I don't want to see this network uh, invest uh, its time and energy in yet one more Ross Perot uh, or uh, Ron Paul. So uh, let's let the kiddies have their fun in the sun at the beginning. And then uh, as the as the race goes on uh, and we've brought in more people, uh, we can focus on the serious candidates. Mm -hmm. you didn't really say stand in front of Andrew Yang at the, when, when, when his graphic comes up or make sure that Tulsi Gabbard gets almost no airtime. But you, you used a device that should be familiar for will no one from when will no one rid me of this troublesome priest. Uh, you just sort of say what it is that you want. And then you're shocked, shocked that uh, anyone would do anything that carries out your wishes. Yeah. 
So two things. And Eric, um, I'm being combative out of appreciation for your thought, not of disrespect <laughs> or anything. So two things here, though. So And, so and I out of love, Marshall. Step <laughs> it up, buddy. I almost said love, but I didn't want to take it that far. This is just our first podcast together. Um, yeah. But for, for my thing, let's talk about the reason why the Democratic Party is so geriatric. Because I'm in D.C., you're on the sort of West Coast. I'm from Oregon, so maybe I've sort of lost touch with my roots here. But I sort of think really systemically about the way that D.C. works. So, for example, part of the reason why all the Democratic candidates are older is the same reason why the Republicans' rising stars, whether you like them or not, Mike Lee, Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, Marco Rubio— Ben Sass are so young is that Republicans were out of power for eight years. And during those eight years in power, they did an excellent job of electing congressmen and electing senators. New blood entered the sort of sphere. If if Obama had not done so poorly during the 2010 and 2014 midterms, there would have been a bunch of rising young Democrats who would have been running for president now. So for example, there was almost certainly some smart young prosecutor in some North Carolina town in 2010 who lost his who either lost his primary or didn't win re-election or didn't win the general election in 2010 because it was a Republican wave election. So what just sort of happened here is that due to the sort of attrition that naturally happens when a party is in power, you start to see the young people don't have an opportunity. In the same way, I think that that's why during a sort of, that, that's why you're seeing like the squad now, like there's always young mm-hmm. Democrats because they're out of power and it's easier for young people to come into power. So I, I think that structural critique is key to sort of the age difference thing here. If John McCain, had won the presidency in 2008 or Mitt Romney had won, we would not have a bunch of 70-year-olds to deal with. We'd actually have a bunch of 40 and 50-year-olds. We'd have the Democrat version of Tom Cotton or Marco Rubio. And then secondly, to the point about sort of Andrew Yang and Tulsi, I don't think and this is sort of the debate about whether or not these things are just too online or too on TV. MSNBC's like, you know, microaggression or macroaggression to borrow a term for the left towards Andrew Yang with, you know, replacing him with other Asian people, that didn't determine the election. Like at the end of the day, the reality is MSNBC doesn't have like, MSNBC on a good gig gets, you know, one to two million viewers. That wasn't where the race was decided. On another note there, like Tulsi didn't do that well because her viewpoints sort of like, conservative on foreign policy, amorphous on progressive issues. She doesn't actually have a base within the Democratic Party. She used to actually be, and this isn't, I'm not using this to be hyperbolic, but Tulsi really did used to be a Republican when she first got into politics in the early 2000s. In a prior, less nationalized version of American politics, she would almost certainly be a moderate Republican if we were in the 50s or 60s. So that's why she's not doing well. It's not because there's a conspiracy. And then finally, to your point about Andrew Yang having as many searches as Elizabeth Warren, that's because Andrew Yang had the most online audience of all time. That's not very shocking. Elizabeth Warren's audience is definitely not sort of online. So that wouldn't seem to me on a structural level to actually sort of translate there. I think the best that could be said about Andrew Yang, we've had him on the podcast, we like him, is that he's the Barry Goldwater of new politics in the sense that he's coming onto the field 10 years too early, but the future definitely mm-hmm. looks like him, which is less politician-y, new ideas, those sort of things. I just threw a lot at you. So I'm just curious what your response is. I don't know, but I liked it. Can you do that again? I, I, missed <laughs> no. um, I think it's a great question, uh, sub-pointed as it, as it, as it were. Uh, let me just, you'll help me out when I fail to remember exactly all the sub-points. Of course. I think that a lot of what's going on is that the, the, the older uh, people are coherent 
and the younger people are less coherent. So hmm. sort of a principle that I learned from Richard Feynman, that the reason that you have the classical world and you don't see the quantum world is that the quantum world is constantly voting in a way that cancels itself out, and the only thing that's left is the coherent part, which is the classical part. So I believe that in some weird way, the boomers may be crazy, they may be stupid, they may be ill-informed, they may not be up-to-date, but they at least know how to march in one common direction, whereas the rest of us are all over the place. So I think that that's a really interesting, weird thing that people haven't observed, that the interesting part of the Democratic Party is trying to find new ideas and new ways of being, and the old part that doesn't work is, is coherent, and coherent yes. beats, beats incoherence. So I think that's part of it. Um, with respect to being out of power and rising young stars, I, I really don't think that's it. I mean, I think even in the Republican situation, you've got Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell uh, up at the top. And yes, there are some rising uh, people like like Hawley, but you also have AOC, as you've pointed out, in the squad. I think that in large measure, what we are coming up on is a totally different world than we've seen for the last 50 years at a minimum, 75 years at a maximum, which I've called the, you know, the, the great nap. Um, <laughs> 2020, no, we've had 75 years where the most early 20th century thing to happen in that period is probably China's great leap forward. Yes. Um, you know, Marshall, one of the points that I liked before you decided to beat up on me like a savage uh, <laughs> was that Europe is actually one of the most dangerous places in the world that we've somehow turned into uh, Disneyland for visiting college students. And, um, you know, and as I always point out, um, even Mount Vesuvius, which used to erupt all the time, hasn't really erupted since like World War II. We've been in an incredibly quiet period. And what you guys are talking about is the young people who are going to deal with the wild shitstorm headed our way, which the boomers and the silence have been very effective in deferring, much the way you defer a wildfire um, and the, the amount of kindling builds up in the forest. So when mm -hmm. this thing goes up, it's gonna, you're going to be able to read at night for sure. Um, you know, we're talking about a complete dissolution of a world order that kept us relatively safe for 75 years. So whatever is coming is going to be effing spectacular. Witness 2020. My guess is that 2020 is, a, is like a mild appetizer. Hmm. Um, I hope to God that we figure out whatever they figured out in 1968 from getting 1968 to just keep escalating in, uh, in severity and importance. But we are in really serious danger. And it, none of the young people are really talking because they uh, talking through this, this change. This change has to come for demographic reasons. And these guys who hold on to power are holding something back. The rest of us can't see around this corner. So none of us are really making sense. I'm just thinking, I just, there's something here which I think about all the time, and I want to get to our, our visions of the future, or, and, and specifically what that needs to look like. I want to go back to that idea of one-party rule. I've been very kind of inspired by um, the man that you work for, Peter Thiel's vision of the future, that we have too much innovation in the world of bits, not enough in the world of atoms, in Ross Douthat, who we've had on the podcast about the age of decadence, that great nap absolutely is what refers to that age of decadence. And it seems to me um, that one of the reasons that we that boomers and many others have such a hard time thinking of today and thinking and dissecting and understanding today's politics is because we haven't lived in a moment like this since what, 1912, 13, um, maybe even 1933. I mean, there, there's, there's, there's little bits of pre-World War One, post-World War One, of the Great Depression, but all of it new. essentially. 
Yeah, we're, it, it's a mix of all of that. And with the age of technology, with the greatly forward of China, of the globalization, the financialized world that we live in, we have to forge a new consensus. What do you think that new consensus should be for the United States? Um, trying to figure out how to update the best aspects of the American project to take into account what has changed. Mm-hmm. And what has changed is principally the twin nuclei problem of cell and atom from 1952 through 54, which is that we are now living in a world in which you cannot explore differences of opinion through hot kinetic conflict because the toys are just too powerful. So more or less world war is over and um, we can't afford the next world war. That is an enormous change that the U.S. is going to have to preside over if it's going to be relevant. Uh, It has to be much more unapologetically nationalistic. Like the world may find us irritating. The world may find us um, overbearing, simplistic, naive, all of the things that I'm used to foreigners saying. (laughs) I really don't like it. I I used to like it when they would call America dumb because they were wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. And I could always say, yeah, why, why do all the patents come out of here? And then they, you know, they would lie about all the reasons. But quite honestly, we cannot have a zombie America with a suddenly plummeting IQ into the 40s, which is armed to the teeth with uh, conventional and unconventional weapons. We have to take over the stability of this planet and you know this is the craziest thing which nobody is going to like in your grown-up audience but it's also true this is the biggest puzzle we've ever had which is how do we make sure that there is a human species a thousand years or 300 years from now because we have the ability to destroy this whole thing the way we're going in fact i would say it's almost certain that we will not make it 300 years with these toys unless we figure out something radically different That's supposed to be the goal of the United States of America, is to figure out what that transition is. And that has to do a tremendous amount with promoting existential risk. And this is why when I was on the Ben Shapiro Sunday special, I called for a return to very occasional above ground nuclear weapons testing so that all of you guys get into your system what a hydrogen device looks like. And you feel it, that you don't think like, okay, yeah, abstractly, I understand that. And here's the throw weight and the such and such. And it's like, no, I want you to get into an Oculus VR uh, system and stand next to a hydrogen bomb going off. Make sure that you understand that. Look out at the masks, the sea of masks, which is a change. Like when the cell phone was developed, there's this picture of everybody looking at the Pope, uh, in St. Peter's Square, and then like 10 years later, everybody's holding up a phone. Okay, well, look at the masks around you. Now imagine, the one thing you've been told is is that absolutely 400%, 12 ways to Sunday, there's no possible way in which this came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Interesting, and very weird. Um, Mm -hmm. Because that's not how we talk in science. And so whenever anybody settles science to that extent, I always say, (laughs) well, that's not really what science is, because I know, I have a PhD in one of these subjects. Um, if that's the twin nuclei problem, imagine that they used accelerated natural selection. So they started growing bat virus in human lung tissue or something. Who knows? Something really dumb. You may be looking at part of the twin nuclei problem changing everything. And the great danger is that the, the planet Earth 
connected as it is by air particles and water and the environment and the atmosphere and electromagnetic communications has become one giant experiment with lots of sub-experiments. The reason we have to get off this planet is that we can't afford to gamble 7 billion or whatever plus billion people we have on this planet on one experiment. And that's the biggest problem. If we don't get off this rock, what Elon is talking about, but I don't think he's very serious about, is we need a long-term plan for humanity that takes into account what happened between 1952 and 1954. It's the the simplest thing to say. Its implications are the craziest thing you can think. It's clearly true. And yet, because we know that we don't have a solution, we're terrified to even point out the fact that we are now um, potentially effectively at the twilight uh, of the part, portion of this planet's history that we will recognize. Hmm. So I had a separate question, but I have to ask the obvious follow-up. Why do you not think Elon is truly serious about it? It's, it's because he's using rockets. He's a physics guy. We both passed through the University of Pennsylvania physics department. Um, I would really, I'm in a tough position because Elon is keeping alive the hopes of the moon landing. So he's sort of picked up the scent where 1969 uh, in the early 70s and the Apollo missions left off. There's only so much you can do with rockets. Hmm. You're not going to get much beyond the moon, Mars. You can fantasize about Titan. You can tell science fiction stories about heat resistant uh, domes on Venus. I don't know what you're going to do. But there aren't enough different rocks and they're all marginal. Nobody wants to go to the moon. Mars is almost impossible to get to. What are you going to do, terraform it? I mean, all of that sounds kind of, forgive me for saying so, kind of, kind of silly. Um, but at least he's trying to do something about the correlation problem. Somebody else is trying to upload. I know how complex the human brain is. I don't think we're anywhere close. I think you know, uploading is a total pipe dream. Hmm. Every one of these things that you go down, this is the interesting thing about existential risk where we are. There is no branch of the decision tree that sounds like an adult authored it. Either we're all going to die, which sounds like a, you know, oh my God, (laughs) we're all going (laughs) to die. Or we're going to get lucky for the next 10,000 years, which there's no, there's no way in hell. Um, We're going to figure out how to control. We're going to have an anti-nuclear weapon that starts an implosion as soon as an explosion starts. Nobody's got a plan. The only thing we have a plan for is the big nap. And the big nap was a crowning achievement. 75 years with nothing much happening other than tens of million people dying in China and a few isolated incidents. It's not, you know, that's not World War I, World War II and the Spanish flu. That's something new. And I'm glad you took us to 1969 at the moon landing because I wanted to ask you about 1968 because we spoke with this, we spoke about this with your brother, Brett. Um, when we're looking at sort of the state of the country and the sort of various cultural fights that we were discussing earlier, I just have the hardest time treating them existentially as some people sort of do or imply they are because you look at what was happening in this country in 1968 it seems to me that and obviously saga i only, only read about this but you had a war in vietnam that resulted in 57,000 people dying you had not just sort of blm riots and sort of like the, the debate after sort of freddie gray's passing but like you actually death you you actually have the dnc turning into a literal urban war you have bombings and actual like violence committed by by the state you have an fbi that was 10 trillion times more out of control than sort of the worst sort of like we maga hope. fears about we james hope. comey yeah, right. I, right 
at least we that we knew at least we knew publicly. That's more of a that's more. We what didn't I know saying. it until seventy one, but okay. Right. We'll, we'll, we'll backhand my FBI. I, I think I know where you're going with that, but I'll backhand my FBI comment. My point is, is that I think that on an empirical level, things were much worse from a 1968 perspective, but we got through it. Um, how do you think we get through today's sort of 1968 adjacent moment? Uh, I think that this rhymes vaguely with 1968, but sort of in the way that modern poets rhyme, which is to say not that much. Um, <laughs> I think we're somewhere new. And I think that one of the really interesting things is that this moment may be much more precarious, and yet uh, Starbucks is open, and most streets, you know, look, even Portland, Oregon, a little bit away from the courthouse, looks like a normal city. So Mm -hmm. one thing we can't figure out is, what is this mysterious ailment that is causing us to behave simultaneously like America business as usual and America batshit crazy from morning till till night uh, lunacy land? We don't know. That's a new, weird feature of the world. And, um, you know, I remember the late 60s, barely. I remember the early 70s, much better. Um, there was enough that you could reset to. Part of the problem is, is that the Democratic Party and its associated media and acad- academic supporters have wiped out this kind of, I don't know how to put it, but like self self-critical um, thinking. So when I, when, when I mentioned like 1971, that was when the Citizens Committee to investigate the FBI broke into the Pennsylvania field office and stole all the documents that they used FOIA requests on as they got their search terms. Effectively what they did is they picked up a bunch of search strings and the, one that, the, the phrase that pays turned out to be COINTELPRO, which is the thing that caused us to understand that back in 1960s, we were trying to kill people like Martin Luther King by his own yeah. hand. I mean, so in part, we don't know. I don't know um, if we're being controlled right now. I have no idea what happened to Jeffrey Epstein. I, I, I don't know. I want to see another Church Pike uh, episode so we actually understand without Snowden's help what the hell's going on inside of our intelligence community. You only find that out that stuff out later. That's a reference uh, to the church. Is that the church committee hearings? The church about committee. The CIA Frank the Church. Yeah. Now, you know, what, what I was going to say is that in 1971, the Citizens Committee to Investigate the FBI was headed by a guy named Bill David, Davidon, who was a physics professor, a student of Murray Gelman, Nobel Prize winner, who taught at Haverford. You had very serious people leading very revolutionary activities in an incredibly disciplined way. Look at the fact that those guys didn't give each other up for, I don't know, 40 years, and Judy Feingold was willing to take it to her death. We don't have a super serious protest movement, in my opinion, at the moment. Um, I, I, I can't tell you how much of an impression Killer Mike's words made on me when he was interviewed in Atlanta when he was trying to stop rioting in the city. Yes. It's like, oh my God, a grown-up. I thought we killed all of those. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, it's just, ahead, you need to have grown-ups as part of the protest movement and... You need to be able to talk to people and reason with people and to progress. And as much as I hate the idea that the head of the weather underground could become a professor, because Lord knows I can't become a professor, should I so much as say, you know, the tiniest joke uh, in the faculty lounge, uh, you can actually try to kill people and, uh, and become a professor if you come from that previous time. It was still a connection between the revolution and normal life. You could absorb people back. My great fear 
is, is that the millennials, even more than Gen X, have been so screwed out of participating in their own society that they feel no basic connection at an important developmental point in their lives. They don't think this is their country. They don't think they're ever going to get any inheritance. They don't think that... Um, Social security is going to work for them. They don't think they're ever going to be in power. And they're behaving exactly the way you would expect if your parents told you, hey, we've built an incredibly beautiful home. We've locked you out, but we've got beautiful windows so you can watch us enjoying everything that you have. And, you know, there are always parents who make a joke about, we're really enjoying spending your inheritance. And then there are parents who actually joke about it and do it. This is that. Yeah, I, I actually completely agree because at least that nihilism, which you see um, basically sweeping the country right now, and you add in Generation Z graduating to this economic depression, it gets worse. I want to end with this, which is that a discussion around what you refer to as super serious people, and you're completely right. And I've said here on the podcast, which is that people think, you know, a lot of my commentary is against the current elite. And I'm like, I'm not inherently anti-elite. It's just our current elite sucks. Like I look they're at not, our current elite. The current and I'm like, elite are not. Yes, they're not even elite. The only they're good not thing elite. they're all they're good at doing is offshoring, making money, and being comfortable. You're, you're in our chairs. Yes. You're in yes. our chairs. You need to get up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, seriously, we're we're in an all you can eat twenty four hour buffet, and you've been sitting there for like fifty years. Yes. You know, Joe Biden tells me, look, look, I just want to go completely crazy on this to give you an audio clip, okay? <laughs> Joe Biden tells somebody in Florida, I think, he's a Gen Z guy, say, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about my future. Mm-hmm. And Joe Biden says, you know, you're the best educated generation in history. I'm just a transitional president. It's like, when does any, has anyone ever needed a transitional president at age 78? Like, mm-hmm. shut up. You entered the Senate at 29. You needed to transitional thing because you're not ready to take power. You, Donald Trump, you, Joe Biden, are not ready. Why are you telling people who've run companies, who've run successful scientific experiments, who can program a computer, that they need a transitional caretaker? I mean, shut up. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to say this. Yeah, I mean, that's the, my question, though, Eric. You came up through some of our most elite institutions in the country. And you're talking also here about how our current elite is not even elite. That seems to me one of the more, you know, all of our problems are They're terrified of the elite. From that. Well, so, so that's the question. How do we make the elite or how do we replace the current elite with actual people who are elite and then teach those elites how to be grownups? People like Killer Mike. People well, who have some sort of duty to their society, to their country, to their nation. Your, your heroes are all spattered in shit uh, as flung by members of your press. So if you see somebody who you thought of as intelligent, kind, compassionate, and they're covered, stem to stern, uh, in flung poop, that's your hero. Go, mm. go wash that person off and give them some power. The, the so-called elite, who are not elite, are telling you who they fear. If somebody is Jewish and he's being called a Nazi, if somebody is clearly against racism and is being called a racist, if you have a guy whose first name is Yusuf and he's talking to you about the problems of Islamic terrorism um, and he's being called an Islamophobe, that's, that's the tell. They're mm-hmm. telling you who you should listen to by telling you who you must not listen to under any circumstances, full stop, right? And so effectively, thank your elite from their, at their, in their homes in the Hamptons or inside the Beltway or uh, battling between the 02139 and 38 area codes, 
tell those people thank you because what they're doing is they're telling you who you should listen to. Whoever it is that makes sense is clearly coming from a position of decency that's labeled alt-right or lunatic left or whatever. Those are the people who you should be listening to. And I, I think that that's the sad truth is we keep talking about the elite as if whoever sits down in an elite chair is the elite. And my feeling is you're confusing the chair for the human being and it's time for these people to get up. Yes. So I'm going to pick two hyperbolic examples just to bring out the debate here and say that, you know, who's sort of covered in shit right now, Alex Jones, right? Alex Jones is covered in shit and Adam Newman um, is also covered in shit. So how do we adjudicate between, and this is sort of, um, have you read Revolt of the Public? No, but you're breaking my rubric, which is that the person has to make a ton of sense to you to begin with. And Alex oh. Jones... <laughs> Interest, but 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 this We're is what's, but this but, here, but here's what's here's what's problematic. Here, so I guess are we are we talking about makes sense to us? Because here's my problem. There's actually a lot of people who Alex Jones makes sense to. There's actually a lot of and and this is sort of the reason why independent media matters. Like I'm not, I'm sort of I would sort of critique myself as like the most establishment friendly person here in terms of my personal biases. But I do recognize that I can't really dictate who someone finds to be important anymore. So I recognize that sort of precept. I'm not here okay. to tell so viewers. We can talk you know, about Q and we can talk about Alex Jones. We can do this whole thing and you can talk about yeah. Milo. And I'm not saying that, that you know, we have this popular idea that uh, the people that we claim are lunatics, they get up in the morning and they say only wrong things and the only bad things and that bad people are always bad about everything. Like you can read Mein Kampf and everything in it is wrong. Um, this is like a really weird piece of um, malware that is in, inside of the human mind. People listen to Alex Jones in part because it's not Alex Jones. It's the failure of the New York Times uh, and Fox and CNN. Everybody can see the political biases. And so you're looking for less filtered channels. Now, right. you know, Joe Rogan is not Alex Jones. Joe Rogan says wrong stuff and he apologizes and and sometimes he's not as up on things as he should be like the rest of us. Mm -hmm. But you've spent hundreds of hours with the guy and you have a pretty clear idea whether he's racist or not. You have a pretty clear idea, you know, that he's not wildly right wing. And somebody's telling you, oh my God, he's incredibly right wing. Well, that's something you can verify, right? If right. you can continuously verify that somebody like Noam Chomsky or Steven Pinker or P.J. O'Rourke, whatever, that they compile. You'll notice that Woke, if it was a computer program, doesn't compile. You can't figure out what it's telling you to do. You have to consult an oracle at all moments to figure out whether you're anti-female for wanting men to be able to compete uh, at, as women if they're, if they're in transition, uh, even though humans are sexually dimorphic. And so there's a different body structure for XX and XY, assuming that people were, were born with a single gender. Um, or you could take the, the position that uh, it's anti-female um, for born XX females to uh, have to deal with XY structured human beings in, in competition. I don't know which is the operative principle. That's why you have like the transphobe versus uh, you know, trans excluding uh, radical feminism and who knows what to call it. 
all of this stuff is, is, is nonsense. You have to be able to find a kind of integrity intellectually where people are willing to admit things. I, I really want Donald Trump not to be the president of the United States. I can admit that he's done lots of good things. I can also mm-hmm. ask, has he done lots of bad things? When somebody shows balance and they're struggling in front of you and they're willing to correct themselves, it has a kind of a feel. There's a grit. There's a kind of, I don't know, an an ineffable quality of saying, you know, maybe I don't agree with you and maybe you're not always truthful, but by and large, I I can track you. The average person who's sitting inside of the commentariat doesn't make any sense. They can't be tracked. If you recall that thing where when Bloomberg was spending hand over fist, they decided that everyone could get a million dollars or something if they spent the money differently. They're not even looking at the math. They're not thinking. The thing that I'm talking about is people with a certain kind of grit, humor, self-confidence. And I can tell you that, you know, a friend of mine, Ben Shapiro, um, yes, he's got a persona in front of the camera. He's much more, he's much closer to a, a person who I think combines left and right in his brain. But when he's on his show, his, his show is a conservative show. He's giving a conservative product. I can tell right. you that all of these people um, are showing you who they are. You don't need to go into Alex Jones' territory. It's enough to know that De- Ben Shapiro is being called a Nazi or that Sam Harris is being called an Islamophobe to let you know, okay, I don't think that exactly captures what's going on because it doesn't make any mm-hmm. effing sense. I think that's a very good way to parse what we're talking about there, also within the labels and then how we can think about people within the labels themselves. Eric, I'm, unfortunately, I wish we, I could talk, we could talk to you for hours, sir, but we really appreciate you joining us um, for this discussion. It's just been absolutely excellent. And I think it's, it, puts, it will put people in a good frame of mind um, to ex- whatever happens. Whatever with the happens, the, th- the thing, let me just send one message yes, to all of, of us. I don't think there was a good way of voting in this election. Whatever you voted, I think I looked down on it. And because I looked down on all of the different ways of voting and non-voting, I have a plea. Go to somebody who voted differently than you do uh, and let them know that you love them, that they're your countrymen and that this is democracy. And whether we get the wrong decision of Biden, the wrong decision of Trump or some completely unforeseen thing, which I worry is going to be the dime landing on its side, we've got to stop tearing each other apart because there isn't enough option optionality here to express yourself. So everybody is expressing themselves Try to imagine that you gave Shakespeare the ability only to say a four-letter word and to sum up his entire thoughts about being a human being on this planet. This election is not affording you the opportunity to express yourself. Given that you failed to express yourself, a little bit of kindness towards your, your, your fellow uh, American citizen who also failed to express her or himself uh, goes a long way. Let's be charitable, let's be kind, and uh, let's come back together when we come up with the wrong result in a, in a short period of time. Couldn't well, agree more with that message. Thank you so much, Eric. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Marshall, really enjoyed meeting you. Sagar, good to be with you as always. Good to see you, Eric. Thanks, Eric. Be well. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. This is our last interview before the election, so obviously a lot's going to happen tomorrow. 
I will be joining Sagar for rising live coverage, so definitely check us out there. And by the way, because we're entering a new moment in American politics and just brought our lives with the election, definitely hit us up with who you all think we should be bringing on the show. We want to stay current. We want to be deep where other people are being sort of broad. And we want to avoid just the sort of palace intrigue debates about who's going to be this secretary, who's going to get replaced if Trump wins re-election. So let us know who we should talk to. A lot of you guys wrote in and said we should talk to Eric. So we'd love to hear other recommendations. Special thank you to the Lincoln Network, our sponsor of this podcast. Reboot Conference coming up. Rebootconference.org. Check it out. Marshall's going to be there. I'm going to be there. Many other friends of the show. And we will see you tomorrow for our special Real Emmett Cues. Cues.